Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. Well, all right. Welcome to another episode of Who Gets to Decide. This is Seth Martin, your host. Thank you for joining. Glad you are here. Happy you are listening. Well, you would have to be living in a hole to not know that energy prices are essentially unaffordable. Um, oil continues. Actually, recently it started to kind of go down a little bit, but uh, the gas prices have continued to go up. And um, maybe we'll continue to go higher. Not not exactly sure. Um, uh, certainly, uh, one of the one of the factors in uh, the cost of oil. Uh, and then consequently gasoline is the the value of the dollar. So we'll have to watch the dollar very carefully and see if it starts going down in value. If it does, that could accelerate energy prices even higher. So I thought what I would do is just take this kind of phenomenon that's happening in the news and talk a little bit about energy production. You know, there's a lot of people that believe that we should, you know, do more renewables like wind and solar. And I stumbled across this guy on uh, one of the TED Talks, and he is clearly a, a progressive, okay? He's, a, he's someone who cares about the environment, and he, early in his career, basically um, dedicated himself to uh, solving or helping to solve these problems uh, with energy production and, and, and climate change. And... I think it's interesting to listen to this guy because he's changed his mind and he's going to go in a direction that uh, probably most of you are not going to expect, but that I 100% agree with. And we'll just, we'll just play some of his clips. I don't know if I'm going to get through all of them, but let's just play some of them and comment on them. I think it's very interesting. And essentially, in my opinion, there's just not enough education uh, in our society about energy production. Uh, where it comes from, um, not just the energy itself, but the, the entire production process that that's, uh, allows us to get it in the first place. Um, some of these processes are actually not clean, like mining for all these metals and tearing up the earth. And um, it, it does uh, almost irreparable damage to the, to the earth. So not to mention the fact that you actually burn more hydrocarbons doing all that than you do saving them by uh, by building wind turbines and solar panels so let's let's hear from this this guy and um, comment on the, some of his on some of his talk and uh, see if we can't get some consensus about a better path around energy production shortly after I turned 30 I decided I wanted to dedicate a significant amount of my life to solving climate change I was worried that global warming would end up destroying many of the natural environments that people had worked so hard to protect. I thought the technical solutions were pretty straightforward. Solar panels on every roof, electric car in the driveway, that the main obstacles were political. And so I helped to organize a coalition of the country's biggest labor unions and biggest environmental groups. Our proposal was for a $300 billion investment in renewables. And the idea was not only would we prevent climate change, but we would also create millions of new jobs in a very fast-growing high-tech sector. Our efforts really paid off in 2007, 
when then-presidential candidate Barack Obama embraced our vision. And between 2009 and 2015, the U.S. invested $150 billion in renewables and other kinds of clean tech. Okay, so he starts off right away talking about he thought most of the problems were technical. And we've talked about that on this program before. A lot of people think that. A lot of people think that battery technology is going to triple or quadruple from from where it is. Or they think solar efficiency is going to quadruple or, or even increase by tenfold. And these are not this is not reality, okay? Uh, most of these technologies are very, very mature uh, and, and don't have that additional room to run. But it is an interesting uh, to listen to this guy talk because he sounds like a politician. And basically, he, he thought, oh, you could just throw money at this problem and uh, have government force its way through these issues, and that would solve all the problems. I mean, you can clearly hear that in his... Uh, in the way he's describing his his mindset going into this problem. And this is very common with most of the people that we share our country with. They believe this is largely a technical problem and that the oil companies are in the way of, of, of progressing, you know, of, of, of attaining progress in our society and all this kind of, uh, you know, talk. And it's just not the case. And as you hear this guy talk about his experience, you're going to hear uh, what he actually found. And this is someone I think is generally pursuing the truth around uh, energy generation and uh, climate change improvement. But right away, we started to encounter some problems. So first of all, the electricity from solar rooftops ends up costing about twice as much as the electricity from solar farms. And both solar farms and wind farms require covering a pretty significant amount of land with solar panels and wind turbines, and also building very big transmission lines to bring all that electricity from the countryside into the city. Both of those things were often very strongly resisted by local communities, as well as by conservation biologists who were concerned about the impacts on wild bird species and other animals. So the people fighting this were not the oil companies, okay? These are local people that are concerned about the impact uh, to their property and, um, and, then, and then just the economics of it. Uh, he, he basically hear him say that solar panels on your roof cost about twice as much as uh, a solar farm, power generated from a solar farm. And then later on in the talk, he talks about, and what do you do with all these solar panels? They have a, about a 20-year life, so they're going to last about as long as your roof, and, uh, and then they have to be disposed of somehow. They have to go somewhere, and, and you, know, you can't just throw them in the trash or whatever. And they, they have a useful life that, uh, that basically it doesn't last forever. So uh, it, these are just challenges that, uh, that, that exist with some of these technologies. It basically seemed to me at the time that most, if not all, of the problems of scaling up solar and wind could be solved through more technological innovation. But as the years went by, these problems persisted and in many cases grew worse. So California is a state that's really committed to renewable energy, but we still haven't converted many of our hydroelectric dams into big batteries. Some of the problems are just geographic. It's just you have to have a very particular kind of formation to be able to do that. And even in those cases, it's 
quite expensive to make those conversions. Other challenges are just that there's other uses for water, like irrigation. And maybe this is the most significant problem, is just that in California, the water in our rivers and reservoirs is growing increasingly scarce and unreliable due to climate change. What he's describing here is uh, in California, they, they'll, what they'll do is they'll use pumps to pump water up to a reservoir during the day when, there's, when, there's, when the solar energy is plentiful. And then they'll use uh, turbines, uh, hydroelectric turbines, to generate electricity at night um, you know, to power the cities and whatnot. But this is, I mean, this is an okay way to do it. Um, because you can, you can pump very slowly, uh, during the day. And then, and then you can, you can, in other words, you can, you can use just a little bit of energy to pump the water uphill during the day and then generate a lot of electricity at night as it falls very rapidly and in larger volumes, um, through the turbines. But one of the parts I take issue here at the end is he says, um, you know, that the, that the water in the rivers and reservoirs in, um, in California are becoming unreliable due to climate change. And that's just, that's actually just not the case. The, the, uh, the water that, that comes out of the mountains in California and goes all the way down to uh, um, L.A. and Southern California, that water used to flow all the way into Mexico. The problem is it's consumed entirely by the population in, in in California. And in fact, all the water that used to go to, to Mexico, none of it goes to Mexico anymore. It's, it's, it's 100% consumed by Californians before it ever even gets close to the Mexican border. So this is not a phenomenon. This is not a climate change phenomenon. This is just a, a, a bunch of people living out in a desert where people don't normally live and they're consuming all the water that, that, that's being transported to that, to that location. So I wanted to take issue a little bit with what he said there. But in general, I think this guy's you know, pretty thoughtful in his ideas. And um, I, just, I just thought he got, out of, he got a little outside of his lane there uh, with that comment. In terms of this issue of, of reliability, as a, as a consequence of it, we've actually had to stop the electricity coming from the solar farms into the cities because there's just been too much of it at times. Or we've been starting to pay our neighboring states like Arizona to take that solar electricity. The alternative is to suffer from blowouts of the grid. Um, and it, it turns out that when it comes to birds and cats, uh, cats don't kill eagles. Eagles kill cats. What cats kill are the small, common sparrows and jays and robins, birds that are not endangered and not at risk of going extinct. What, what, what do kill eagles and other big birds like this kite, as well as owls and condors and other threatened and endangered species are wind turbines. In fact, they're one of the most significant threats to those big bird species that we have. We just It seems like he's going off on some tangent here about the birds, but what what he's talking about there's a lot of people they argue that oh these wind turbines are killing birds and people are like well you know so what you know cats kill birds you know i mean what's the big deal but the distinction he's trying to make is uh, obviously the the wind turbines the types of birds that they're killing are are you know like eagles and and this kite that's kind of uh um uh, that's um 
endangered and then certain kinds of owls and things like that birds that that cats don't kill so that's the point he's making there but um you know the the, the guy has a, a a real soft spot you know for um you know for wildlife and and the environment and and even though he's concerned about climate change he's also concerned about the environment and the damage that these technologies are potentially doing to the environment and the wildlife that live there in the environment and in terms of solar, you know, building a solar farm is a lot like building any other kind of farm. You have to clear the whole area of wildlife. So this is a picture of one third of uh, one of the biggest solar farms in California called Ivanpah. In order to build this, they had to clear the whole area of desert tortoises, literally pulling desert tortoises and their babies out of burrows, putting them on the back of pickup trucks and transporting them to captivity where many of them ended up dying. And currently, the current estimates are that about 6,000 birds are killed every year, actually catching on fire above the solar farm and, and plunging to their deaths. Over time, it gradually struck me that there was really no amount of technological innovation that was going to make the sun shine more regularly or wind blow more reliably. In fact, nothing could, you could make solar panels cheaper, you could make wind turbines bigger, but sunlight and wind are just really dilute fuels. And in order to produce significant amounts of electricity, you just have to cover a very large landmass with them. This commentary that he's making here is really comes down to energy density. And this is something that's often overlooked uh, when people are talking about uh, renewable energies or just other forms of energy. The, the density of energy is very critical because as, we, as the planet grows in population, you know, land becomes more and more scarce. And we need to be able to produce energy, uh, greater amounts of energy, and without requiring as much land, not the other way around. In fact, history, history has really been, uh, the energy production of history has really been in the opposite direction. And part of progressing as human beings is to improve upon uh, techniques in the past, like clearing forest and living off wood, uh, you know, that's very not energy dense. And it changes the landscape and the environment in a way that, uh, you know, it really is, is negatively impacts wildlife and the climate and, and various things. So um, really, this energy density concept is very important, and it's very subtle in what he's talking about, but I wanted to point it out there. All of the major problems with renewables aren't technical, they're natural. Well, dealing with all of this unreliability and the big environmental impacts obviously comes at a pretty high economic cost. You know, we've been hearing a lot about how solar panels and wind turbines have come down in cost in recent years, but that cost has been significantly outweighed by just the challenges of integrating all of that unreliable power onto the grid. Just take, for instance, what's happened in California. At the period in which solar panels have come down in price very significantly, same with wind, we've seen our electricity prices go up five times more than the rest of the country. And it, it's not unique to us. You can see the same phenomenon happened in Germany, which is really the world's leader in solar wind and other renewable technologies. Their prices increased 50% during their big renewable energy push. So you might remember, I, I make comments from time to time about how you know, something that we're doing will eventually make us poor, you know, reduce our standard of living. This is what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the, whether it's, it's through the taxation of the government 
because of government subsidies and that makes us poor, or if we just if we just assume some technology is better than others and you know pass the cost off onto uh, taxpayers and and citizens of the state, that also makes us poor. Anytime anytime you you increase the cost of a good or service. Uh, that reduces the number of goods and services you can buy elsewhere inside your household. So that's what he's talking about here, and, and that's what I mean when when I say uh, doing you know doing these inter, you know making these energy policies come to fruition is going to make us poor. This is exactly what I'm talking about. What he's just described. Now you might think, well, dealing with climate change is just going to require that we all pay more for energy. That's what I used to think. But consider the case of France. France actually gets twice as much of its electricity from clean zero emission sources than does Germany. And yet France pays half as much, almost half as much for its electricity. How can that be? Well, you might have already anticipated the answer. France gets most of its electricity from nuclear power, about 75% in total. And nuclear just ends up being a lot more reliable, generating power 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for about 90% of the year. Yeah, and nuclear is very energy dense. And, of course, we don't hear about nuclear uh, catastrophes happening in France. And so... I think you can presume from that it's pretty it's pretty reliable. Now we've had some challenges here in the U.S., namely Three Mile Island, and then uh, over in, in Japan uh, during the tsunami, the Fukushima site um, had a, a big problem. But uh, one of the things that France, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that France does that's unique is they have these small like community reactors that they can place in. Uh, smaller, like almost like cities, like small cities, you know, power the whole city. And it's just a fraction, you know, it's not nearly the size of something like Three Mile Island. And they're self-contained. And they've got some really good nuclear technology. And, and you know, this has basically just been kicked to the curb by our political establishment and uh, all the people pushing uh, for climate change and all this other stuff. So, you know he's he's going to talk more about it, but this is this is basically the path we should be on, especially if your plan is to have more electric cars and things like that, stuff that you can charge from the grid. Uh, you want to have uh, plenty of uh, reliable, uh, inexpensive energy to draw from, and that's what nuclear provides. I think one of the most significant findings to date is this one. Had Germany spent $580 billion on nuclear instead of renewables, it would already be getting 100% of its, of its electricity from clean energy sources and all of its transportation energy. That's a pretty remarkable claim, but it's, it's likely true. I mean, uh, you know, when you go over to those uh, countries like Germany and France, they use a lot of uh, trains and, and uh, uh, subway-type systems, and so they, they use quite a bit of electricity for their transportation systems, and so they uh, probably could be getting uh, all that, uh, all their transportation energy and all their um, residential and commercial energy uh, if they had uh, invested that money in nuclear. Instead, they've invested a lot of money, quite a bit of money. That's you got to remember, Germany's not quite the size of the economy we have, so $600 billion is a lot of money. And uh, make no mistake, Germany is poor for making that, that political, ultimately political decision that they then forced on their population. 
Now, I think you might be wondering, and it's quite reasonable to ask, is nuclear power safe? And what do you do with the waste? Well, those are very reasonable questions. Turns out that there's been scientific studies on this going over 40 years. This is just the most recent study that was done by the prestigious British medical journal Lancet, finds that nuclear power is the safest. It's easy to understand why. According to the World Health Organization, about 7 million people die annually from air pollution, and nuclear plants don't emit that. As a result, the climate scientist James Hansen looked at it, and he calculated that nuclear power has already saved almost 2 million lives to date. I'm not sure how you quantify deaths from air pollution, but, I mean, there's certainly air pollution from, you know, coal plants and uh, gas-powered power plants, and and the, the fact is you just don't have that with nuclear. So, uh, you, I guess we could argue back and forth about whether, you know, air pollution really kills that many people. Uh, I'm probably on the side that it does not, but if you're someone who is concerned about climate change and you're concerned about carbon in the air, well, then certainly coal power plants and natural gas-fired power plants uh, should be a concern of yours, and uh, nuclear just simply doesn't have that. So uh, I think that's maybe the stronger argument. Uh, but if you if you think there's air pollution and people are dying from it, that's just another good argument uh, in, that runs in the direction of nuclear. Now, what about environmental impact? Well, I think a really easy way to think about it is that uranium fuel, which is what we use to power nuclear plants, is just really energy dense. About, as mount, about the same amount of uranium as this, as this Rubik's cube can power all of the energy that you need in your entire life. As a consequence, you just don't need that much land in order to produce a significant amount of electricity. Here you can compare the solar farm I just described, Ivanpah, to California's last nuclear plant, Diablo Canyon. It takes 450 times more land to generate the same amount of electricity as it does from nuclear. You would need 17 more solar farms like Ivanpah in order to generate the same output as Diablo Canyon. And of course, it would then be unreliable. So he's talking again about energy density. And in which what we need to be asking ourselves is, in a, in a world where population numbers are increasing and the, the demands on land occupation are increasing. Do we really have the luxury of, of taking up 450 times more land mass to produce energy that we could, that we could produce in a, in, a, in a single nuclear power plant? And of course, the answer to that question is no. So, you know, increasing energy density runs in the direction of human flourishing, human progress. It's not the other way around. That's just one of the big fallacies of this climate change madness. Uh, we've got to, you know, produce more solar and wind uh, political trajectory that the whole world is on. You know, the the climate accords in France and all this other crazy stuff. So this is uh, this is just the wrong direction. Uh, but like everything else, it's become so political, and because everybody's got an opinion about politics. Uh, we necessarily are going to have to go down a path that's going to make us poor and, uh, before we learn the lesson. And that's, that's just kind of the way things are going. Well, what about the mining and the waste and the material throughput? Well, this has been studied pretty closely as well, and it just turns out that solar panels require 17 times more materials than nuclear plants do in the form of cement, glass, concrete, steel, and that includes all the fuel used for those nuclear plants. 
the consequence is that what comes out at the end, since it's material throughput, is just not a lot of waste from nuclear. All of the waste from the Swiss nuclear program fits into this room. Nuclear waste is actually the only waste from electricity production that's safely contained and internalized. Every other way of making electricity emits the waste into the natural environment, either as pollution or as material waste. He's exactly right about that. There's absolutely nothing uh, to pick at in those comments. Um, this, but the problem is we're not looking at that. We're not looking at all the lines of production that go into solar farms or wind farms and in the full life cycle of those production processes. And we should be looking at that because it's, it's, it's like without the subsidies, without the government subsidies, we would never as consumers select these, these um, solutions for power generation. They're just too expensive and they, and, and they do too much damage uh, to the environment. But because if you want to put solar panels on your house, you can get uh, a 30% tax credit from the government and because the government is throwing a bunch of money into these solar farms and into these wind farms, you know, it makes it uh, economically viable. Well, that's not really economically viable, right? Because they're, it's being taxpayer subsidized. So this is just, you know, again, all this stuff is making us poor. Uh, I, I don't have anything negative at all to say about his uh, last comment there. We tend to think of solar panels as clean. But the truth is, is that there is no plan to deal with solar panels at the end of their 20 or 25 year life. A lot of experts are actually very concerned that solar panels are just going to be shipped to poor countries in Africa or Asia with the rest of our electronic waste stream to be disassembled, often exposing people to really high levels of toxic, of toxic elements, including lead, cadmium and chromium, elements that because they're elements, their toxicity never declines over time. So when you're dealing with uh, with uh, assets like power plants or uh, refineries or or things like that, one, there's a concept they talk about in in those industries, and it's called life cycle cost. In other words, they don't look at just the cost of acquiring a piece of equipment; they look at the full cost of ownership. What is it going to cost to own that? And that includes you know the waste it produces, uh, the maintenance that you have to provide for that piece of equipment or that asset. Uh, they, they factor in all those costs. And the reality is with, with this, uh, this new energy economy movement, none of those costs are being factored in uh, to these decisions. And it's primarily because they're political decisions. And, um, and you know, like I said, oh, I've said it over and over and over again, these decisions are making us poor. They're not increasing the reliability or the availability of power on the grid. They're making it fundamentally unreliable. And, you know, probably what we'll see out of some of this, especially down in Texas, you know, Texas has about 30% of its power now comes from wind and solar. And it's going to be a hot summer. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if Texas starts having rolling blackouts, which, by the way, Texas has never had. I've lived in Texas my whole life. We've never had rolling blackouts. But I would not be surprised if this summer we start having them. In the past, I and I think a lot of others have sort of said, well, in order to deal with climate change, we're just going to need all the different kinds of clean energy that we have. The problem is, is that just turns out not to be true. You remember I discussed France a little bit ago. 
France gets most of its electricity from nuclear. If France were to try to significantly scale up solar and wind, it would also have to significantly reduce how much electricity it gets from nuclear. That's because in order to handle the huge variability of solar and wind on the grid, they would need to burn more natural gas. Think of it this way, it's just really hard to ramp up and down a nuclear plant. Whereas I think we're all pretty familiar with turning the natural gas up and down on our stove. A similar process works in managing the grid. Of course, it goes without saying that oil and gas companies understand this pretty well, which is why we've seen them invest millions of dollars in recent years in promoting solar and wind. So I bet you didn't think of that one, that BP, BP is one of the biggest oil companies investing in solar and wind. But I bet you didn't think BP was investing in solar and wind so they could sell you more oil and natural gas. I mean, it's, it's counterintuitive, but what he's saying is true. Uh, if, you, if you fundamentally have a, a, an unreliable source of power uh, creating the, the energy on the grid, you have to supplement that with something that's more reliable. And uh, gas, what they call peaking plants, is, is how they do that. They're, they're cogen facilities or peaking facilities that they can ramp up and down very quickly to supplement uh, the, the shortfall uh, on the grid that happens you know, momentarily. You could, you could have like a 30-minute period or a, an hour and 30-minute period where you need to provide power to the grid because the solar and the wind is not providing it. And this is, of course, done with natural gas and uh, uh, cogeneration or steam turbines all of which I think raises a really uncomfortable question. In the effort to try to save the climate, are we destroying the environment? Well, the interesting thing is that over the last several hundred years, human beings have actually been trying to move away from what you would consider matter-dense fuels towards energy-dense ones. And that means really from wood and dung towards coal, oil, natural gas, uranium. This is a phenomenon that's been going on for a long time. Poor countries around the world are in the process still of moving away from wood and dung as their primary energies. And for the most part, this is a positive thing. Uh, as you stop using wood as your major source of fuel, it allows the forests to grow back and the wildlife to return. As you stop burning wood in your home, you, don't, you no longer need to breathe that toxic smoke. And as you go from coal to natural gas and uranium as your main sources of energy, it holds out the possibility of basically eliminating air pollution altogether. This is exactly what I was talking about earlier. The move from what he calls matter-based energy, like wood and dung, to, to, uh, oil, to oil, natural gas, and eventually uranium is in, is in the direction of um, you know more dense fuels, okay? And this movement in the direction of more dense fuels is also movement in the direction of human flourishing or, or the increase of standard of living is another way to think about it. In fact, he even brings up the fact that some poor countries are still burning wood. Um, and so, you know, they, they haven't figured out how to develop that energy yet. Uh, so it's just interesting that, that politically and as a society, we've decided to go backwards in time, um, back to, you know, the 18th century uh, in terms of energy production. And it just doesn't make any sense. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it because we, we need to be, we need to be discussing this. And there's a great, there's a great paper that I've talked about on this program before, but I'll, I'll bring it up again. It's called the new energy economy 
an exercise in magical thinking. And I would recommend that each of you go download that paper from the internet. It's about 20 pages. It'll take you a little while to read, but it's very interesting. The guy does a very thorough job of, of analyzing uh, these, these technologies and um, kind of summarizes the problem. And, and he also says it's not a technological problem. That's a fallacy. Uh, we have this fallacy kind of surrounding our political jargon that, you know, this is going to scale like Moore's law, you know, with the integrated circuit. And that's just not the case. It's not going to happen that way. So yeah, go, go pick up that, uh, that paper. It's by uh, a group called the Manhattan Institute and it's called the new energy economy an exercise in magical thinking at an international level in my home state of california we've been stuffing a lot of natural gas into the side of a mountain in order to handle all that intermittent solar and wind it sprung a leak it was the equivalent to putting 500,000 cars on the road and currently in germany there's protesters trying to block a new coal mining project uh, that would involve destroying the ancient hombak forest in order to get to the coal underneath all in an effort to phase out nuclear and expand solar and wind. If you're thinking to yourself, this all seems very counterproductive, I, I, I think I'm going to have to agree with you. It is very counterproductive. We're, again, going backwards, not, not in the direction of human flourishing, but a regress, a regress of human flourishing. And at some point, this will become obvious to everybody, and they'll throw in the towel. Politically, it'll become unpopular, and the government will quit talking about it, and we'll quit wasting money on it. And but but we're gonna we're all gonna suffer in the meantime. Um, we're the debt's gonna get bigger. Our taxes are likely gonna go up, and we're gonna pay more for energy in the meantime until we can get back on track. We saw last year in South Korea a citizens' jury deliberated for several months, weighing these different issues. They had to decide whether they were gonna phase out nuclear or or, or keep it and expand it. They started out forty percent in favor of expanding nuclear, but after several months and considering these issues, they ended up voting 60% to expand nuclear. A similar phenomenon just happened last week in Arizona. The voters had a ballot initiative that, to vote on whether or not to uh, continue with nuclear or to phase it out and try to replace it with natural gas and solar. They ended up rejecting it 70 to 30. And even here in Europe, we saw the Netherlands is the, one of the first countries in recent memory to actually announce, as they did last week, that they're going to start to they're going to start to increase their reliance on nuclear power in recognition that there's just no way they could generate significant amounts of energy enough from solar and wind to meet their climate targets. So I'm hopeful because these are these are positive developments. It sounds it sounds like people are coming around to the idea that this is a panacea. It's a political project. It's it's a bunch of politicians that don't really know anything, you know, sitting around deciding for the rest of us uh, how we should live, you know, how much we should pay for energy, how much we should pay for gas and oil and all these things. And this is this is um, this is one of the reasons I I. I I make these podcasts, right? I, I want people to understand that, no, the best way forward is a free market. It's a, it's a market where the consumer decides um, what they want to spend their money on, and the structure, the structure of production then develops around what the consumers want to produce it. Uh, this, these political interventions are, are are dangerous. They're they're look at look at what's happening in Ukraine. Okay, this is all about energy. 
Okay, it's all about who's going to supply energy to Europe and and things like that. And and so these are these are real uh, serious uh, situations, and 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 they shouldn't be in the hands of politicians. These decisions should not be in the hands of politicians. And I think since America is still a relatively free country, we need to lead the way on that. We need to not be joining the Paris Accord with all these other idiots uh, talking about you know solar and wind when we know there are people that know uh, in this country. Very, very smart people, engineers, uh, scientists. They know this is not the right path forward. But the money is so good because it's government money, right? Where does government get its money? Well, it gets it from you. But some of these people are just living at the trough, uh, the government trough, and and it, it's such a good deal for them that they're not willing to stand up. So the best way to, to deal with this is just take it out of the government's hands. So that's, that's, uh, that's what I'd like to advocate for. Well, look, if you've enjoyed the program, uh, share it with somebody somebody you like, somebody you don't like, maybe a family member. I'm not suggesting you don't like your family family members, but uh, share the program with whoever, whomever you think would, uh, would enjoy it, and keep coming back and listening. And I'll keep coming back and trying to put out interesting content for you to listen to. All of the major problems with renewables aren't technical, they're natural. Now that we know that renewables can't save the planet, are we going to keep letting them destroy it? I think a better alternative is just to tell the truth. <laughs>